March 9th, 1748, a young British sailor was abruptly awakened to the sound of complete chaos all around him. Suddenly and without warning, a violent storm had descended upon his ship. One of the crew members had already been swept overboard and drowned. This was a monster of a storm and a matter of life or death. And at only 23 years old, this young sailor was confronted with his own mortality as he struggled for hours on end to keep the boat from capsizing. And like so many others throughout history before him, in his hour of desperation, in his hour of fear, John Newton cried out to God, begging him for mercy. The following day, March 10th, the terrifying storm had subsided and the badly battered ship was miraculously still afloat. For the young 23-year-old John Newton, this was the hour he first believed. It was this experience, this hour, that he would reference years later when he wrote the now universally beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." Newton would forever credit that miracle at sea as being the hour he first believed That is to say, his moment of initial belief. Because John Newton had been a slave trader. And he would continue to actively participate in the horrors of the slave trade for a few more years, even after that dramatic, life-altering conversion at sea. The hour John Newton first believed was not the hour that his faith was perfected. He may have begun to believe, but he did not change overnight, not by a long shot. To use his own word, Newton described himself as a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's it's a word we don't use very often. It means a despicable person, a shameful, detestable, vile person, And John Newton had been all of those things. He had been a wretched human being. Later in his life, he wrote about and he confessed the atrocities that he witnessed, the unspeakable crimes against humanity that he and his crew participated in. The men and the women that were tortured, tortured and killed under his watch. When he calls himself a wretch, He's not being hyperbolic. He's not exaggerating. He means it. Because for all intents and purposes, John Newton had been a total monster. But then came the revelation of a lifetime that God's abundant grace was able to save even a wretched human being like John Newton, the slave trader. And how precious did that grace appear the hour he first believed. Again, The hour that he first believed was not the hour that his faith was perfected, not by a mile, but it was the beginning of a transformation that would last a lifetime. By the time Newton was in his 50s, he had become one of Britain's foremost abolitionists, actively speaking out against the slave trade. 
He wrote, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. He once was blind, but now he was finally able to see. And see he did. He lived just long enough to see Parliament abolish the slave trade in 1807 when he was 82 years old. What a storied life. When the revelation came and the invitation to a new kind of life was offered, John Newton said yes. The hour he first believed, even though it was only a moment at sea, housed within it the potential to change not only the heart of a wicked, wretched man, but also to change the world. Because over the past 250 years, amazing grace has been sung by nearly every culture on earth. And it's even become an anthem for the very people once captured once traded, and once tortured by John Newton himself. That is amazing grace. What a dichotomy from enslaver to freedom fighter, from lost to found. That's the power of amazing grace. That's the power of Jesus to completely transform a life no matter how wretched. And I've got good news for us. Today, Jesus is still revealing his glory today. He's still changing hearts. And he presents us with an invitation to simply believe. So the question is, will we? How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. If you're using a house Bible, that's page 882. We're going to be looking at two such moments today, two distinct moments of initial belief. We're in the second week of our series all about the gospel of John. And while you're turning uh, to John chapter 2, let me welcome those of you who are joining us online, whether you're live with us this morning or watching later on in the week or even in a year, wherever you are in the world, I'm just glad that you chose to be here and to join us. So thank you for being here. And to those of you who are able to make it in person, I feel like I say this every time, but it is hard sometimes to get out of the house and to make it to church on Sunday morning, and I feel like that needs to be celebrated every time. So you made it to church. You can celebrate. (laughs) You made it to church. All right. John chapter 2. We're going to go to a wedding today. But before we look at the word together, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your spirit and your presence already in our midst. I thank you that you are here. And my simple prayer now, Lord, is that you would cause this word to come to life. Illuminate the truth of your word. Let me decrease that your spirit may more increase, Lord God. And speak to each person just what they need to hear in a way that only you can. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a quick recap. Barry kicked this series off last week, this brand new series, all about the Gospel of John, reminding us that John is a book that is intentionally provocative. It depicts these moments in the life of Jesus and in the lives of his disciples, moments that beg the question, do you believe? Are you in or are you out with this whole 
Jesus thing. There's no middle gray area with the Jesus that we see presented here in the Gospel of John. No, you can't be lukewarm about this. You have to pick a side to accept him or reject him. And all who do choose to believe in Jesus can become children of God and can be born into this new kind of life. But there's a problem. We read last week that Jesus came into the world that he created, but that world didn't recognize him. And he came to his own people, but even they rejected him. And so John is not being shy at all about the bold claims that he's making in this gospel. He's saying, here is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He is among us, and I saw him with my own two eyes. Do you recognize him? Do you believe him? Now, I know that I said we'd be in John chapter 2, and we will. We'll get to John chapter 2. But there's a moment of revelation, a moment of initial belief that I don't want us to miss in chapter 1. So we're going to go back to chapter 1 for a second. John the Baptist had been publicly declaring that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, God's anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah. And in verse 35... John tells us that two of John the Baptist's disciples actually started following Jesus. One of them we know was Andrew because he is mentioned by name. Andrew, the first thing he did was run and tell his brother Simon, who we would later know as Peter. And then Jesus calls Philip to follow him. And the first thing Philip does is go and tell his friend Nathaniel. And I want to camp out on this Nathaniel character for a moment, and you'll see why in a minute. For our purposes today, I'm going to call him Nathaniel the skeptic or or Nathaniel the sarcastic cynic. I like Nathaniel. I like this guy. I like his sense of humor. Check out what he says in chapter 1, verse 46. I love that his witty remark was recorded in the Bible for all of time, and John must have really liked this line. Philip had just met Jesus. And immediately he goes and he finds his friend Nathanael and he tells him, we found him, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus. He's the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And I love Nathanael's response. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? I love that. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Because I feel like everyone has their own version of this. We can all think of a town or maybe a part of a town that for whatever reason just has a shady reputation. You're thinking of one right now. We don't want to go there. We don't trust anybody from there. And it could be as as simple as a cross-town rivalry, or it could be something much worse. Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's cynical. He's sarcastic. Nathaniel is a skeptic, but he's also the first disciple to recognize that Jesus is so much more than just a wise teacher. So Philip brings his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus so that he can see for himself how amazing this rabbi is. And John tells us in verse 47 of chapter 1, as they approached Jesus said of Nathanael, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. 
And this just blew cynical Nathaniel's mind. Jesus from Nazareth of all places, who was a total stranger, by the way, just spoke as though he knew Nathaniel personally. Nathaniel is stunned. He asked the question, how do you know about me? And Jesus responds, I could see you. I could see you when you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip found you. And here's the moment. Here's the moment I didn't want us to miss. Here's the revelation of a lifetime for Nathaniel. Watch what he says here in verse 49. In that moment, in that hour, something happened that changed his attitude from one of skepticism to one of firm belief. Look at what he says. Then Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. He boldly proclaims it, and now it's Jesus who has somewhat of a witty remark for Nathaniel. He said, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than this. You will see greater things than this. And that is what brings us to chapter 2. Nathaniel had just been told that he would see greater things, and the first example of this takes place at the wedding of an unnamed couple in a village called Cana. So read with me. John chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 1. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Let's pause here for a moment because this would have been a really big deal. This wasn't a wedding reception like we think of them today. Weddings could last, the celebration could last for, for days on end, days on end. In ancient Jewish wedding ceremonies, and even today, wine is a symbol of joy. That means that for this couple, wine would have been an important symbol of their marriage, a symbol of the joy of their union, and it would have brought great shame to this couple to have run out of something so central to the symbolism and the meaning of this occasion. They would have been ridiculed, and their marriage would have been marked by disgrace from the very beginning, a horrible, embarrassing way to start. But beyond the shame that this would have brought to the family in this culture, there could have been legal ramifications as well. There were certain standards and expectations that the families were legally obligated to uphold. This was a culture that placed such a heavy importance and a high value on hospitality that the bridegroom's family could actually have been sued if they didn't provide a, a proper wedding. He could have been sued. The family could have been sued for running out of wine. And Mary would have known this. Women were often involved in the behind-the-scenes prep of such ceremonies and the food prep and such, working behind the scenes to make sure that everything went smoothly and according to plan. When this celebration ran out of wine, Mary likely would have been one of the first to know. And she certainly would have been aware of the gravity of the situation and what this would mean for this couple. And she didn't want this couple to be ashamed. She didn't want ridicule and disgrace to fall on this family. 
She knew she needed to act fast, and she knew that there was one person in attendance who had the power to turn this whole catastrophe around. And so she goes to her son Jesus, and she tells him, they have no more wine. Now, I want to point out that to me as a mom, that is the most mom statement in all of the Bible. I love how indirect she is with this statement. She doesn't say, make more wine. I need you to do that right now. She just tells him, they have no more wine. She's telling him there's a problem. It's like when I look at my kids and I tell them, your room is looking pretty nasty. Or there's laundry on the dining room table. It's, it's enough for me to make them aware that I am aware that there's a problem. There's a problem. And usually that's enough. They know that I know that there's a problem. And that's sort of what Mary is doing here when she tells her son, they have no more wine. She's telling him there's a problem. Verse 4, dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time is not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I have to pause here again because of this dear woman thing. Dear woman, my time has not yet come. Other translations don't even bother putting the dear in front of that word. Your translation might say, woman, my time has not yet come. Listen, my son, who is sitting in the third row, just turned 18 a couple of weeks ago. And I don't care how old he becomes. I have been told that, you know, he's technically an adult. I've been told. But I don't care how old he gets. If he ever <laughs> called me woman in public, it would not end well for him. And he knows that. And for that reason, I had to dig into this word a little bit. Woman, did Jesus dis disrespect his mom in, in front of everyone? Well, no, it turns out the word that Jesus uses for woman here is, is gune. And it's actually an affectionate and respectful and appropriate form of addressing a woman. So no worries there. Jesus is not being harsh. He's not being rude. He's not being disrespectful. But he didn't use the word mother. And I think that is significant. Did he think that maybe Mary was meddling? Did he think that she was doing too much? The literal translation here is, dear woman, what is there between me and you? As if to say, this thing isn't between us. This is their problem. We're just guests. But I love the way that Mary responds in verse 5. She just looks at him. Okay, that part is not in the word, but I believe she just... <laughs> looks at him because that's what I would do and then she turns to the servants and says do whatever he tells you I love this scene so much and I love the careful attention that John plays to bring this story to life for us he's bringing this story to life because you know what even though Jesus had just protested that his time had not yet come ultimately he listened to his mom for whatever reason, at his mother's urging, he chose to act on this couple's behalf. Why would he do that? The truth is we're not entirely sure why. On one hand, he's God, and he knows the end from the beginning. So when he chose to act, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was inaugurating his public ministry. He was going public for the first time. He knew there was no going back. 
after this, after he revealed his glory in this way. But he had just told Mary that his time had not yet come. So why act? Was it because he was ultimately choosing to honor his mother? Was that it? Maybe he saw the compassion in her request, in her indirect motherly request. And as a guest of this happy couple, Jesus would not have wanted shame and ridicule and a potential lawsuit to be the way they started out their marriage. No, he would have not wanted that for them. He would have wanted nothing but blessing and fullness of joy for their young marriage. Blessing and joy in abundance. So we'll pick it up here in verse 6. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew. He called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Only moments ago, this groom was at risk of being shamed and ridiculed and potentially even sued, but now he's being praised and hailed for being a lavish host. And instead of being remembered as that failed, joyless, scandalous wedding, the one that ran out of wine, this wedding will go down in history as one of the most legendary weddings of all time. And here's the moment Here is the moment for the disciples that were in attendance that day. This was the hour they first believed. Watch what it says in verse 11. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The revelation of a lifetime. For Nathaniel, it had come a chapter earlier, but for these disciples, their moment was now. John calls this, this event a miraculous sign. The, the word he uses for sign here is samion. It, it means a sign, typically miraculous, given especially to confirm, corroborate, or authenticate. This miracle, this sign corroborated what John the Baptist had declared about Jesus, that he truly was the chosen one of God. John is making the connection. It's all coming together for him. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, John writes, For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. We know that, that John was echoing the Old Testament when he wrote his gospel. We saw some of that last week in chapter 1. Here he says, the law was given through Moses, 
but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus. He's making a comparison. Moses did this, but Jesus did this. The law came through Moses, but love and faithfulness came through Jesus. And get this, Moses' first miracle was turning water into blood, and that blood brought death and chaos and God's judgment. But Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, and that wine brought with it restoration and hope and God's joy in abundance. John is seeing for the first time that Jesus is God in the flesh. This was the hour he first believed. Now there was something else that caught my attention in verse 9. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. And I have to wonder, whatever happened to those servants? (laughs) Whatever happened to them? John tells us that they knew where this miraculous wine had come from. So did they believe? The servants recognized that the Son of God had just performed a miracle right in front of their eyes. Or did they think it was some kind of magic trick? Did they think that Jesus was some kind of mystic with with magical powers? Is that what it is? Did they they try to, to reason it away? Did they miss the revelation of a lifetime? Or... Maybe this was the hour they first believed. We don't know. The only thing John indicates clearly is that this was the moment when Jesus' disciples believed in him. So the question for us is, do we? Do we believe? Do we believe in him? And if we do, if you do, when was that moment for you? Do you remember What for you was the hour you first believed? Were you rescued like John Newton was rescued? Was there a moment like Nathaniel experienced where you felt seen and known by Jesus? Did you witness something that just couldn't be explained? Maybe there was a time in your life when you realized just how much God cares about you. Maybe it was a a moment of need that turned into a testimony of his provision. Or maybe it was a, a season of grief where you felt his comfort and his abiding presence and you knew that he was near. Or maybe it wasn't a singular event at all. Maybe it was a series of events. Maybe it happened over time for you. Maybe there have been things that you've witnessed over the span of your lifetime that have authenticated, corroborated, and confirmed that Jesus is who he says he is. I know for me, I was born into the church. I must have gotten saved hundreds of times. Some of y'all laughing know what I'm talking about because every time there was an altar call, I would be down there on my knees, wringing my hands, promising God that I would do better. Again and again, promising him, I will do better this time. I will do better this time. I had no dramatic John Newton-like rescue or conversion, but there had been various signs throughout my life, moments and events that corroborated what John says in the next chapter of this gospel, in chapter 3, in verse 16. 
that God so loved the world. And that means that God so loves me. And I can identify the moment when I first felt the weight of his mercy and forgiveness. When he revealed to me for the first time the glory of his grace. Because before that, I had a head knowledge of amazing grace. I knew what it meant theologically. I'd grown up in church. But the hour I first understood, for me, that was the revelation of a lifetime. I remember the moment that I realized that I had had it all wrong as a kid, white-knuckling my prayers at the altar, basing my own salvation on a promise that I would do better. I will always remember the hour I first understood why grace was so amazing, that it was never about my doing, that God's love for me had never wavered, And that the same measure of grace and life and hope was offered to me back in the days when I considered myself a good Christian kid. And when it all came crashing down. When my good Christian bubble burst and the weight of God's mercy shattered the false image I had of myself. I remember simultaneously clinging to his promises for dear life to get me through those dark hours and yet being so completely set free by the fact that despite all the darkness, he would still offer me the promise of new life, a wretch like me. I will always, always remember that hour, the hour I first fully believed but I know that there are some of you listening now who who don't believe. There are some who would say, well, sure, if I saw Jesus perform a miracle like turning water into wine, then I could believe too. Maybe you've been waiting on a sign, hmm? something to corroborate and authenticate and confirm that Jesus is who he says he is. About a month ago, I went to uh, see one of my favorite bands play a concert downtown Indianapolis at the Hi-Fi. That was a fun night. I heard a lyric that goes like this. Blind as I'd become, I used to wonder where you are. These days I can't find where you're not. Blind as I'd become, I used to wonder where you are, but these days I can't find where you're not. The glory of God is all around us. It's everywhere. I see it in nature. Yes, I see it in creation. I see the light of his glory in the eyes of the people he created, the people he gave his life to save. I see the light of God's glory in each one of your eyes. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The darkness can never extinguish the light of God's glory. I've seen God's glory in the way that my husband has loved me for 20 years, in the way that our marriage has been restored. I remember I remember how God's glorious light brought us life and shined into our darkness. The darkness didn't stand a chance when God's glory came rushing in to our mess. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. 
I saw his glory in my mom's final hours, in our family's darkest hours, when we weren't sure how we were going to live without her. But we let her go, and we sang her into the arms of Jesus, and I can tell you God's glory was so thick in the room that day, illuminating even our darkest moments of deepest sorrow. Even in the sorrow, God's glory is there. His light shines even in the darkness, and the darkness, no matter what it is, can never extinguish it. Blind as I'd become, I used to wonder where you are, but these days I can't find where you're not. Jesus is still revealing his glory to us today. He's still changing hearts. From his abundance, we've all received one gracious blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses. But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the unique one who is himself, God, is near to the Father's heart. And he has revealed God to us. Blind as I had become, I used to wonder where you are, but these days I can't find where you're not. Jesus is still revealing his glory today. He's still changing hearts, and he presents us today with an invitation to simply believe. So will we? Do you believe? And if you do, Who are you telling? Who are you sharing this good news with? Are you like Philip? Are you excited to tell your friends about what you've experienced about this new life in Jesus? Are you excited to tell your friends, even the skeptical ones? And let me just say, church, you do not need to be afraid of the skeptics in your lives. You don't need to be afraid of the skeptic in your life. Because God's love is big enough for them. Just look at the way he loved Nathaniel. Skip to the end. Look at the way he loved doubting Thomas. God's love is big enough for the skeptic in your life. All you need to do is be like Philip. Philip invited his skeptical friend. He invited him to come and see for himself. That's all you need to do. God will take care of the rest. And if you are the skeptic, if you struggle to believe, Jesus' offer of abundant life and love and mercy and forgiveness, this new kind of life we've been talking about, this is for you too. His offer still stands. Maybe today can be the hour that you first believe. Your faith will not be brought to complete perfection. But maybe today can be your initial moment of belief. And maybe like John Newton, like Nathaniel, like Andrew and Peter and John, like me and so many others in this room and online and around the world, maybe you too will catch a glimpse of why God's grace is so amazing that his light still shines in the darkness and the darkness never could and never will be able to extinguish it the revelation of a lifetime. And over the arc of your storied life, as you learn from and follow Jesus, you too can be transformed from lost 
to found, from blindness to sight, from death to life. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Praise God. Lord, I believe. And I want the people I know, the people I love, who are still stumbling around in the dark, wondering where you are. Lord, I want them to see. Even now, Lord, I pray that you would reveal your glory to us. Reveal your glory to us, that we would be able to see with fresh eyes that you are everywhere and that no kind of darkness can extinguish your glory and that your love can be extended and is extended to the wretchedest of wretched people, even to a wretch like me. I thank you. I thank you for your mercy, and I thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.